was always a, a skill I had an aptitude for, but I certainly never planned to try to make a living out of it. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. On this episode, I met up with William Schaff at his studio in Warren, Rhode Island, Fort Foreclosure. Will is a well-known artist that has created iconic images for bands such as Ockerville River, Magnolia Electric Company, and Godspeed You Black Emperor. He's also worked with local Rhode Island bands, Brownbird, The Low Cards, and No Plateau, to name a few. In addition to being a highly recognized visual artist, he's also played in some amazing bands, including The Eyesores and What Cheer Brigade. In our interview, we talk about how he started playing in these bands, his creative process, and how meeting the guys from Fort Thunder helped lead him down this path. Enjoy the episode, and make sure to follow along on Facebook and Instagram, at LivingRoomUTB, for photos of some of the things we talked about here, show flyers, and more. Thanks for taking some time to sit and talk music and art. It's my pleasure. Rhode Island's a great little state. In Providence, um, I always thought, was one of the best cities for music and art on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy to give whatever little thoughts I have on it that I can. Uh, so yeah, Boston. I was there for my entire life growing up, and then uh, from Boston I went to Baltimore for seven years. Yeah. And in my desire to be as far away from Baltimore as possible, but close to my family again, Rhode Island was the closest I could get and still afford it. And I'd already known Providence because I'd done a pre-college year here at RISD. Yeah. Um, being from Boston, there were enough times we were down in Providence seeing a show or what have you. Yeah. So I liked Providence. Yeah. So I came here, and I've been in Rhode Island ever since. That was in 97. Uh, I was in Providence for maybe four or so years. Then moved up to Warren. Been here for uh, going on 20. Wow, yeah. cool. And growing up, was your family into music? or Very much so. Yeah. My mom moved to this country for Elvis and JFK. Really? Um, yeah, she's from Italy, and because of my dad. And my dad was a musician. He's been dead for some time now. But yeah. My mom's uh, born and raised in Italy. And as a teenager, you know, growing up post-war Italy, her father had really instilled in her the idea that America had saved the Italians, that they had kept them, you know, they, they rescued them from the Germans. And so she and her best friend would always go to the films and uh, buy all the Elvis records they could. They were big mm-hmm. Elvis fans and try to learn English from that. And then they would go down to the cafes along the port. because She was in Genoa, Italy, port town. Okay. And uh, would meet sailors and talk to them to practice their English. And one time, my dad was a uh, was in the navy. He was uh, on the forestall in the admiral's band. He was a trumpet player, and uh, they were they landed in port in Genoa. He was at the club. He met my mom. She was sixteen. He was eighteen. Uh, they went on a couple dates. She says she fell in love with him, and then romantically stalked him for the next I don't know how many years. But her plan <laughs> had already been to come to America with her best friend. Yeah, uh, they were both huge fans of JFK. They're like I said, both huge fans of Elvis. And so, growing up in my house, always music playing. I mean, it was mostly Elvis playing. Growing up, the Beatles weren't allowed in the house, um, even though my dad was a big Beatles fan. And then, of course, my dad 
growing up introduced me to all sorts of music. Every year for Christmas, he would put a cassette in my stocking mm-hmm. that he said, you might not like this, but you should hear it. And you know, I remember one of the first cassettes he gave me, and sure enough, I didn't like it as a kid, was Art Tatum, the jazz pianist. Okay. Looking back on it now, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I realized, I'm so glad my dad introduced me to it. Yeah. Uh, bands like the Ink Spots. You know, I would have never heard of them as a kid who was growing up around the era of, you know, hair bands and Whitney Houston and Huey Lewis in the News and things mm-hmm. like that. So he was always making sure I was hearing music, and he was always taking us to uh, Drum Corps International competitions, which I became a big fan of. Yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, music, we had pianos in the house. My dad got me a drum kit when I was in second grade. It lasted about a week before my mom said, get that thing out of here. <laughs> Um, he tried teaching me cornet when I was young. I didn't have the patience for it. He taught my sister piano. Um, and my grandmother, his mother, was also very musically inclined. So, you know, and she was completely self-taught, which to this day so amazed me to think of the things. She, everything she could play, and she had an entire song books in her head memorized all by ear. Yeah. And, but every time they'd get together, there was always music in the house, singing, playing and stuff. It was, it was definitely a musical household growing up. Cool. Yeah. And when did you start playing music then? I don't think I seriously started playing music until high school. And by seriously, I mean I had heard bands I liked and I wanted to do that. Yeah. Up to that point, I messed around with things. I remember throwing near tantrums to get a little keyboard when I was a kid. Because, you know, Motley Crue's Home Sweet Home, I'd figured out on the piano. Yeah. I said, I need a keyboard now so I can do my anthem-like rock stadium sounds. <laughs> you know, I learned Axel F and all that shit. Yeah. <laughs> But that was just messing around in the house. In high school, uh, you know, like most high schools, there was a music department, mm-hmm. and I would hang out in it every so often. And one time, my teacher back then, James Bergen, he uh, put a bass in my hand. And, th- you know, I think the first bass line I figured out was Bauhaus's uh, Bella Lugosi's Dead, which, you know, if you know the track, that's not a particularly complex bass line. Not hard to figure out, but for me, I was all psyched. Yeah. Man, I ain't playing Bella Lugosi's Dead. Yeah. And so the first instrument I really started trying to learn to play was bass, and um, I did it. And I just kept playing around with it until college, when I had taken one of my father's old electric guitars to Baltimore with me, and uh, taught myself electric guitar. And it was, you know, from there on, I just started playing in bands and writing my own music, learning covers of other people's stuff and whatnot. Yeah, okay. Cool. Yeah, so music was a huge part of my life. Mixtapes, you know, we're making them for everybody, but... Going to live venues, I was always the guy tagging along. I didn't have a car, so it was wherever we went. It was loud. We were dancing yeah. and jumping about. I wasn't a drinker back then, so I was just all hopped up on Coca-Cola and cigarettes. Um, yeah. To the extent that it almost didn't matter what band was playing. If they had guitars and drums and they were pounding out, that was exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, what did you study in, in Baltimore? Art. I went to the Maryland Institute College of Art. Um a great school in a lot of ways. I'm sure it's changed since I was there, but I imagine it's still good. They had a great program back then that if your grades were good enough and you could get, you know, agreements from the head of your department and the professor you would pick, you could basically test out of all your classes and um, just work in your studio. And twice a week, your professor would come and meet with you in your studio as you're developing this body of work. Oh, okay. Which, more importantly, I thought, when I'm looking back at it, it actually taught me how to work in a studio. Because, you oh, know... Right. Sitting in your own environment for 10 to 12 hours a day and saying that the only reason you're getting work done is because you're doing it. There's no boss over you saying you have to do it. That's, mm-hmm. that's a skill in itself to learn. Yeah. And so for more than two and a half years at school, that's all I was doing was working in my studio. Yeah, okay. It was great. At the time, I was 
doing also almost like a minor in Holocaust studies. And so I was trying to wrap my brain around everything I was learning, and I was using this time in my studio to reflect on that. So I did a huge series of over five to 600 drawings in the end of drawings that I would say looked at Holocaust memory. It was always a very important distinction to me that people didn't think I was trying to illustrate the Holocaust because I didn't live through it. I cannot relate to having gone through it. But I can relate to the impact learning about it had on me, reading, videos, uh, interviews with people, what have you. And I was trying to do this all where each image was one single figure, no recognizable, discernible background. And so all through the poses and all through the treatment of the figure was me trying to reflect on this. So it was a fairly depressing time in Baltimore. And did you always draw, like even when you went back as a, as a kid? or I did. I think as a child, uh, there wasn't a lot I was particularly adept at. And one thing I could do was I could draw. I didn't really have too much of an imagination, I don't think. I would mostly go up to people and say, what should I draw? Okay. And to get me away, they'd say, you know, go draw a fire truck. Yeah. So I'd go draw a fire truck. I'd come back and they'd say, wow, that looks like a fire truck. Good job. <laughs> and yeah. I felt good. I'm like, hey, I'm getting praised. What else should I draw? And they'd say, uh, go draw a horse. I'd draw a horse, things like that. So yeah. it was always a, a skill I had an aptitude for. But I certainly never planned to try to make a living out of it. That, that came mm-hmm. later, and that came sort of uh, it came sort of almost as a mistake. You yeah. Know, I, well, I, how, how did it come about? Um, I really wanted to go to RISD. I really liked my experience there doing the pre-college program. But even up to that point, I just liked learning to draw. I got accepted, but I didn't get any financial aid. So uh, I wasn't going to RISD, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. So I called my best friend. I'd stayed back a year in high school, so all my friends had already gone off to college. Mm-hmm. Called my best friend who was in Baltimore at the time at Johns Hopkins and I said, Hey, do you have any art schools down there? Guess I'll try that again. And he said, Yeah, there is. I got in. They gave me great financial aid and I went there. Yeah. Started studying it and that's when I started thinking, Oh, I could make a career out of this. I mean, I think I had very warped understandings of what it meant to make a career, but that was the first time I thought, I am going to be an artist for a living. Yeah. Okay. How did you start as an artist? Were you doing... Um... Oh, my ass kicked a lot. That's how I started. <laughs> yeah. Like, what type of... Uh, like, who who were you working for? Were you doing commission pieces? Were you... No. Right off the bat, when I got out of college, you know, I had this idea that because I had gone to a fine art college and I developed this large body of work, I had yeah. this misconception that I was going to get into a gallery. A gallery would represent me and I would continue to strike the world with my unique vision. Yeah. Um, <laughs> My first job was actually working at Pizza Pie over there on Wicked End Street. The yeah. unique vision was quickly squashed. And the first art job I had, I designed Christmas figurines for a company out of Hong Kong. And the only reason I got the job was because the guy who was... I used to go into the RISD job office or whatever they call mm-hmm. it. And they didn't realize I wasn't a RISD student. So I would just look at their job listings and take them down and go home and write to people and try to get the jobs. Yeah. And this one I'd gotten because the fellow was looking for someone who could draw like him so that the company hadn't realized he was subcontracting the work out. He just was getting too much figurine work. He didn't want to be doing all these figurines. Wow. So he's like, okay. can you make it look like I drew this? Sure. So I did. <laughs> I did that for a couple of years. Yeah. And then I was trying to get uh, jobs through magazines, illustration jobs. Yeah. Um, I was trying to do things the proper way, setting up proper portfolios, uh, doing everything they tell you to do. I remember one magazine, I think it was The Progressive, you know, I always got rejections for, for the most part. Um, and one magazine just kept sending me rejection notices even after I stopped sending them submissions. <laughs> it's like three or four months afterwards, I, just, I was on some list of rejection notices. <laughs> um, 
But what it was that really changed my course there to start doing what I'm doing now was meeting the guys from Fort Thunder. I worked at Kinko's. I worked third shift. And yep. they would come in and they would just, they figured out how to scam that place and they scammed it well. I mean, they were hundreds of hundreds of copies every night. And uh, I got to know them and I got chatting with them. And especially Chippendale and uh, Brian Ralph, mm-hmm. they were doing these little mini comics, these little mini handmade yeah, scenes. Yeah, and yeah. I had never seen those. And I thought these were brilliant because no one could tell them where to put these. No, plus you could sell them on like Acme Video or something like that, get yep. a couple bucks for them. But what I loved was you could show your art anywhere and no one could tell you otherwise. So I started to make my own little mini zines that I would leave on bus seats. I'd go to the library and stick them between the pages of my favorite book and stuff like that. With the okay. idea that, you know, someone's going to find these. Yeah. And those little zines actually are what introduced me to some of the bands that I later worked with that really helped, you know, my career. In the sense that, you know, when people say there's a lot of luck involved in this, it's 90% luck. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to work hard. Your chops got to be there for that lucky moment. And for me, working with certain bands like Godspeed, You Black Emperor, and Jason Molina, that was luck. And yeah. those both came about because of little zines. Oh, really? Yeah. How, the the how Godspeed story was I was touring at this point, and yeah. um, we had played a show at Hotel Tutango, and, um, you know, which was uh, Godspeed's little, uh, which Godspeed's living space and, yeah. and musical space up in uh, Montreal. Montreal, yeah. And so I would always bring these little zines with me and leave them at people's places that let us stay as a thank you gift. And cool. that morning when I woke up, I met Ephraim. Again, I didn't know who Godspeed was at that time. It was just like another band on tour or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> I can be amazingly oblivious to so much shit. And I was <laughs> definitely oblivious to who they were. And yeah. um, he wakes up and I'm already on the couch. And because of a certain tattoo he had, I was fascinated by this guy. And I instantly start barraging him with questions. Yeah. And at which point he tells me to go fuck myself. He just woke up, leave me alone. <laughs> a few hours later, we start talking and we get on really well. And so I left him some zines to say, hey, thanks for uh, letting us stay. Yeah. When we got back to the States like a week later, he had sent me an email saying, you know, my band got a new album coming out. Would you do the artwork for us? Oh, okay. What do you need yeah. about? Yeah. Like, oh, we need by Monday. So that's not happening. <laughs> He said, okay, well, can we use some of the images from this little zine you gave me, which were yeah. the images that ended up going on that Lift Your Skinny Fists album. Yeah. And uh, I was like, sure, because, again, I had no clue who they were. And in my thinking, I'd already done the drawing. Don't worry about it. Go ahead, use them. Yeah. That was huge for me. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, uh, my, I think my sister or Huba called me and said, uh, so why am I seeing your artwork in Rolling Stone? I don't know. Why are you seeing it in Rolling Stone? <laughs> Another person, hey, I just saw them in the New Yorker. Really, why? And that's when I started realizing the uh, appeal these guys had internationally. Okay. And now I'm getting emails from people in France saying, wow, I saw your art. I loved it. How can I see more of it? And I'd never experienced anything like yeah. that. And the same with Jason. Um, when Jason was playing at Songs Ohio, I think somewhere in Boston, I was at work at Kinko's or something like that, and my buddy Sonny was going to see him. I mm-hmm. couldn't go. I gave him a few zines. I'm like, hey, if you get a chance, will you give these to Jason Molina and just say that from a fan? He did. About a month later, I got an email from Jason saying, we should trade art. Oh, really? I'm like, wow, that'd be great. So we started trading art to the mail, and that kept leading to, we kept one-upping each other, saying, well, if you like this, how about you do this? Okay, well, if you like this, how about mm-hmm. you do this? And uh, one show I went to go see him, so I'd meet up with him when he'd come through town, and he was playing upstairs at the Middle East one time, and he had done a cover of Towns Van Zandt's uh, Tower Song, which I didn't know who Towns Van Zandt was. Mm-hmm. Beautiful song. Yeah. So I asked him after, well, what album's that on? I've never heard it. Like, oh, it's not mine. I don't really record covers. 
just a song I do. At that same night when we were hanging out, he said he always wanted to see himself as one of my little skull-headed creatures. So I sent him a drawing of himself playing some music to me as a little skull-headed creature. And I wrote, like, man, if you like that, how about you send me a recording of those town songs? I don't care how you do it. Do it on a boombox, go in the studio, whatever. Just please, I want to get those recordings. Mm -hmm. And so he did. And it was on a cassette that also had all these new songs he was working on and said, well, if you like that, how about you draw the cover to this album? And that's what led to the first album I did for him, the Magnolia Electric Company album. Which, again, that all came about from my little zines getting into his hands. Yeah. So I really thank the Four Thunder guys for opening my eyes to the idea that you don't need a gallery. I remember one story. I finally got my first gallery show in Providence, in Wayland Square somewhere. Because every gallery I talked to was like, no, we don't want your work. They all felt like dinner sounded there. <laughs> um, that was their response. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I finally got a gallery willing to show me. And I remember going up to Chippendale saying, hey, man, let's, let's, uh, you want to do this, make this a group show. That'd be fun. Mm -hmm. Looked at me and said, no. Why don't we just go in the woods, hang some art up, and see who shows up? Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah. I remember thinking at first, that's the dumbest idea I ever heard. <laughs> Years later, I now realize that is the best idea he could have made. I mean, he didn't participate with me in my show, and I went about, and I was still following a very sort of traditional path that you were supposed to follow, mm -hmm. but I eventually learned a lesson from all those Fort Thunder guys. Rather than do what you're supposed to, do what you love. Yeah. Because it shows through. And I yeah. think you see that in a lot of Providence artists and a lot of Providence musicians, that they're not trying to do what's popular. They're trying to do what they love. Yeah. And granted, that leads to 70% of the music and art in the city absolutely sucking. But that 30% that doesn't, it's so phenomenal and has so much sincerity in it. Mm -hmm. It leads to stuff you don't find in places like Boston, New York, L.A., yeah. uh, San Francisco, Providence. No one's in Providence because they think they're going to make it. And that's the beauty of the city. Yeah, People are just, here just to make art and music. Mm -hmm. So was that Godspeed You Black Emperor, was that the first record cover that you No. Mm -hmm. um, the very first one I did was actually in a Baltimore band that I don't even know if the record ever came out. It was called The Scott Fartis Affair. It was uh, offshoots of this other band called Butch, which were guys I knew from playing in bands in Baltimore. The first record I remember coming out that I did well, I did some, there was a cassette-only label in Baltimore I did some artwork for, but those were all very small, you know, maybe a hundred each, so I don't know if that counts. I think Ockerville River was the first one I did. Okay. Um, for their very first album. So at that point, they weren't anybody. They, no one knew who they were. Yeah. Um, matter of fact, I remember seeing them at AS220 when they came through and played. I think there was maybe 15 people there. Yeah. But I met them, and again, this goes back to the luck thing. The drummer I had replaced in the eyesores while he was touring, while he was walking the Appalachian Trail was Mark Bedini, a screen printer out of Providence who lived at ASU 20. Great drummer, great percussionist. He eventually moved to Austin, met the Ockerville guys, and started playing with them. Oh, and okay. he used to say to Will, he's like, Will, man, you're going to meet my friend Will Schaff back in Providence, because, you know, the singer-songwriter for Ockerville is Will Schaff. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, you guys got to meet. Your names are so similar. <laughs> so when yeah. uh, Mark got married, he got married here in Providence, and Will and Zach, two of the original Ockerville guys, um, came and stayed here at the house, and that's where I got to meet Will Chef. Mm -hmm. We started talking, and he said, you should do our album. Oh, and, cool. uh, yeah, and I did that, and that started a long, uh, long partnership with working with Ockerville, but that was probably my first album I did, and I think Godspeed was second. Yeah. Um, and by that point, too, I think I might have already done, my memory is so poor, I think I might have already done the, my first Eyesores album cover, too, because the first three Eyesores albums 
I am playing. I'm playing on the first two, but I also did the artwork for the first three albums. Oh, okay. Yeah. How many other Rhode Island bands have you worked with? Not many, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I did uh, something for Corleone Records once. Uh, they had did a series of split 12 inches or 10 inches, I can't remember what, but they had each cover was screen printed. So I'd done the design for one of those. Nice. Um, yeah, it was nice. I'm looking around here. The thing is, well, I did a six-star... Okay, I did a couple albums on six, on 75 or less records. Not Providence, but still Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah. I did a six-star general yeah. album. I did a, a Dan Baker album cover. I did a Low Cards album. I did two What Cheer albums. But those all came later. I think mm-hmm. for the most part... Ah, what am I thinking? I also did... In Some the last, I did the last three Brown Bird albums. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Sorry, Morgan. Yeah, no kidding. Sorry, the woman who lives in my building. Yeah. Uh, but, well, it's funny. What made me remember Brown Bird was um, I try to keep my prices reasonable, mm-hmm. but I also try to keep them something that affords me my living. Yeah. And I remember, though, David, you know, a book came out about artwork I'd done for bands. This is David Lamb. Yeah. yeah. A book came out about artwork I'd done for bands, came out on Grayface Records some years back. What we got the opportunity to do was we approached the different bands that I'd done work for and asked them to write the introduction for their section. Okay. And David wrote, besides a really wonderful and humorous introduction, he points out, he's like, you know, we looked around at other people, because I guess they had asked me and I told them my price, and they were like, eh. <laughs> Turns out I was still the cheapest. So, you know, <laughs> I ain't cheap, but I'm still the cheapest. <laughs> but I think that's kept a lot of, oh, there was another Rhode Island band, No Plateau. And again, yeah. take it, you know No Plateau? Yeah, I've done some shows. Okay, and you take a band like that, and this to me is wonderful because they're doing this all as passion. They have mm-hmm. no label behind them. Yeah. That's those guys getting my rate up to pay me to make art for them. Yeah. Which to me signifies they give as much a shit about the outside of their packaging as the inside of yeah. the music. And that, that means a lot to me. Uh, yeah. I have a lot of respect for that too, but I yeah. think that's really not the norm where people can afford. I mean, I can't afford myself. Even though I am cheap, I can't afford myself. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I have, I have a lot of appreciation and respect for people willing to make that investment into their album mm-hmm. as well. Can you talk a little bit more about the process of creating art for an album? Or do they guide you with in any way? No, I've got they... super strict terms. Yeah. <laughs> super strict, obnoxious terms, which also might be why I haven't done a lot of artwork for Rhode Island bands. Um, and I learned these terms actually from working with Jason Molina. Mm-hmm. And again, taking some of that ethos, to use a fun word, I'd learned from the Four Thunder guys. Um, basically, when someone asks me about doing artwork, I have these different um, templates I send them. So if they're asking for album art, I send them my record terms template. Mm-hmm. And the very first line in the template is, I don't do illustrations. And I go on to define that, meaning if you see a picture you can you can imagine me doing in your head, I'm not your guy. Because mm-hmm. uh, I guarantee you, I will fail. It will not look like what is in your head, because I can't see in your head. Mm-hmm. I know other artists who are much better at finding that. Um, so I tell the people that, you know, if you've contacted me, it's because you've seen my work and you yeah. know what I do, and you like what I do, yeah. trust that you will like what I do for you. And I give them the example, again, of Jason. When I did the artwork, that first album for him, um, I said, you know, I was still thinking kind of like an illustrator. Oh, okay. So I'm like, what do you want me to do, Mr. Jason? Yeah. And I'm like, well, you should do what you want to do. Let me just tell you this. When I made this album, I was thinking a lot about pyramids, magnolias, and owls. Go with it. Oh, okay. I'm like, well, that's kind of loose. But in the end, 
that worked out beautifully. And the images that went on those albums to this day, I mean, I'm still amazed how many people get that thing tattooed on. You know, this yeah, is an image cool. that really is connected with a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. And it allowed me to put a lot more of me into it. And this goes back to that sincerity I'd say you can see in people's eyes. And so now when people want me to do work for them, I ask them to choose the medium. Yeah. Um, I ask them to choose how many images they want because obviously that changes the, yeah. the price. Is that like one or you got to do the yeah, back cover? Yeah, one image. Right, exactly. And I mean, I always tell people, if you want one image and then you and your, or your designer wants to go in and pluck different elements from that and throw it all over the album, pop dog, do it. Mm-hmm. It's one image for you to do with what you want, how you want. Yeah. But uh, I find out how many images they want and then I just ask for a copy of the album at which point I listen to the album on repeat while I come up with what I want to do, which is a testament to a lot of the albums I've done, because most albums, by the time a piece is done, I've heard it 40 to 50 times in a row. Yeah. And I'm not bored with it. You know, there's been a, there's been a few albums out there that I can only make a few listens through. Mm-hmm. But most of the artists I've been lucky enough to work with, their albums are so beautiful that literally you can just songs over, final songs over, it skips back to the beginning. You don't feel like, oh, I've heard this already. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I've lucked out in that way. And then, so I create what I want. They, mm-hmm. If they like what I've done, because they always pay me half down just to do the project. Mm-hmm. If they like what I've done, they pay me the final half. I give them the digital files. We're all good. If they don't like what I've done, all right, I take no offense. I keep the final half, the first half for my time. Mm-hmm. They don't get any of the images. I can give them the name of other artists they can go to if they want, but that was it. There's no revisions. This is, this is what I think would work for what yeah. I'm doing. So I'm lucky, because that's a very, it's not easy terms to work with. You, Everyone's giving a lot of trust there. I'm giving trust that I'm going to get the full pay. Mm-hmm. They're giving trust that they're not going to lose the down payment and that they get something they like. Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot of trust in that. more you do something, the more you find your own way of doing it. Like, uh, I don't know, making a frittata. It's not a complex recipe, mm-hmm. but everyone's going to find their own way of adding to it that makes it their own. Yeah, okay. So there are certainly visual repetitions in my work that if you see them, people are going to say, oh, that's a sh-. For instance, when I do a lot of commissions, people have to say to me, no dead people in this one. Because obviously I put a lot of dead people in my stuff. So... Mm-hmm. The use of dead people in my work is a visual representation that is, I think, the way I use them is clearly mine. Mm-hmm. Um, but the hard, distorted, black linear lines, I think any fan of German Expressionism are probably going to be showing that too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, it is funny. And it also cracks me up when I meet people who say, holy smokes, I didn't realize you did these albums too. You know, for instance, the Ockerville fans maybe didn't realize that I did the Brown Bird albums because, uh, for whatever reasons. So it is fun yeah. to meet the folk who don't realize that I'm, you know, working in embroidery, in dioramas, in, in collage, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask you about 
the different mediums that you work in and, and how you've explored those? Like how, um, how has that path been? Did, did you... I think it's, um, like anything, you, you do music. Yeah. So, okay, at one point you're doing the music you love because you love it. And maybe you start hearing some new artists you're also really into, and that inspires you to try something different with the music you're already doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe it inspires you to try a whole new instrument or a whole new way of allowing the instrument you play to sound. It's that same sort of thing. Okay. So, uh, yeah. uh, so yeah, we are here in your studio for yeah. foreclosure. Yes. Um, can you talk about what your work here? And, and I mean, we'll take some pictures and post them, but it is, uh, I guess to your other point of Fort Thunder, you know, I remember hearing Brian talk about like living in the arts. And I yeah. can say that right now we are in the arts. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier about, I think you can always see people's inspirations if you look, and one should never be afraid to admit it. Fort Thunder was a huge inspiration to me. I remember mm-hmm. hanging out with, again, it was mostly Chippendale and Ralph, and it was mostly either at Kinko's or at the Fort. So it's not like, you know, we were tripping like fantastic, riding the gondolas down the river or anything like that. <laughs> but um, it was always so inspiring to be around there. And yeah, they did. They Those are the first artists I met who lived art. They... Mm-hmm. What concerns they had about money didn't seem to stop them. Mm-hmm. Um, they found ways around it. And that inspired me when I got, I got this building after my dad died in, uh, 2000. And, uh, he left me 25K. Mm-hmm. And I knew I would never see that much money at once again. So I'm like, I should probably buy a house. Mm-hmm. And bought this building with the intent of flipping it years later for a mill building. Cause that was really my goal. I lived in mill buildings in Baltimore. I love mill buildings. So I bought this, and for the first five years I was here in this town, I was not a fan of it. I was still pedaling to work every day in Providence and shit like that. Mm-hmm. But by year five, different circumstances happened between year one and year five, but by year five, um, I was in love with this town. Mm-hmm. And I was now living in this studio. Originally, I'd been living up, I'd been living in the whole house. Mm-hmm. Um, circumstances led to where I had to rent out the other floors, and I just moved down to the studio. Yeah. And it was great, actually. You know, for as depressing as it was at times, it was also fantastic because I woke up, I ate, slept, and breathed art. I mean, I still had other jobs I had to do, but whenever I came back through that door, here was my desk. Here was the project I was working on. Let's get back to it. And I'd Mm -hmm. work on it until I fell asleep, and I'd wake up again and start working again. Yeah, Um, yeah. So, yeah, the way this space is set up, it is inspired by Fort Thunder. I'd like to think it's cleaner than Fort Thunder. It's not much, but still, I remember being with Chimaneo one day, after some show, I don't remember what show, but he was like, okay, I gotta start cleaning now. And I'm picturing a broom's gonna come out in a dustpan. He was walking around with a staple gun, picking up trash off the floor, just stapling it to the walls. I'm like, okay, I can see that. And look, you know, it certainly worked with the aesthetic of the building. Yeah. Um, and I've tried to do that too. I mean, I've tried to cover every inch of this room that's coverable with work I've done, either work that's still available or work that I've already sold and with a reproduction of it. Mm-hmm. All these fake flowers. From an insulation I got to do when they were kind enough to ask me to do a window insulation at the Dirt Palace. Mm-hmm. And when I brought them back, I just started putting them up everywhere in here. And I've since continued because I love it. I mean, it just makes yeah. the room have more life to it. And you don't Absolutely. have to water yeah, it. Yeah. So yeah, everything in here has got something going for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gets the name Fort Foreclosure because this building has been foreclosed on four times. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I have to say a big shout out to anyone who's listening. The only reason it is not in the bank's hands is really because of my patrons, um, people who want to see the work go. Uh, the yeah. Third time it got foreclosed on, I finally got so sick of always going into that in and out situation of being foreclosed on. 
I ran a fundraiser campaign, an Indiegogo campaign, and people donated. They got me out of foreclosure, and they even gave me a sort of safety net. Yeah, so for foreclosure, it gets its name hard-earned. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, uh, with this space, you, I know you do some shows here as mm-hmm. well. Um, can you talk about surely can. about that? I worked at Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel for I think it was six years or so. Okay. I was the head of security. Best group of people I've ever worked with, an incredible group of people to work mm-hmm. with. One of my least favorite jobs I've ever had. At first, it was a lot of fun, mm-hmm. especially when you got to see bands you liked and shit like that. By the end, I was so burnt out. Another thing I got very burnt out on was the idea of any amplified music. The second I hear that quarter-inch jack go into the yeah. amp and it makes that distinct little buzz, yeah. my stomach turns and I'm just in the wrong place. Yeah. So I do love live music. I played with What Cheer for a long time. And yeah. even that was just loud as shit. The fact that it was always unamplified mm-hmm. has its own sound. You heard the instrument, and I love that. Yeah. And I thought I would still like to continue that, but one... I don't want to see it in a club. And two, I don't particularly like leaving my house. So I'll invite acts I like to play in here. Yeah. There'll be no amps. The idea is, and I'd also learn this from what cheer, the glory of being right there with your audience, yeah. nose to nose. You're not on a stage. There's none of those traditional barriers. They're with you as much as you are with them. Mm-hmm. It's a true conversation. And I think one of the first bands we had here was actually Brownbird, because you know, Morgan even David lived here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Morgan, he still does. James Maple was, uh, I think, the opening act. And it was just glorious. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite acts to this day, I still remember. I mean, I've been fortunate to see a lot of amazing acts come through here. But we had the Assembly of Light. Do you know them? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, their 18-piece women's choir, only 12 mm-hmm. could show up that night. And this is a small spot. So, you know, max 40 people, mm-hmm. including the act. I think that night we maybe had 20 guests. And I also tell the performers, set up where you want. This is your space. Take it over how you want. Make this something different. Mm-hmm. Assembly Light came in, they put us all in the middle of the room, they got around us in a circle, and for 20 minutes straight just sang to us. Now, if you go see Assembly of Light live, it's going to be a great show, but they're always going to be on the stage, their mm-hmm. beautiful voices are always going to be coming through that filter of a sound system, which is going to be very dependent on the soundboard and how good they are and how good the system yeah. is. This was just these angelic voices singing to us for 20 minutes, all around us, true, ster- true surround sound. Yeah, that's cool. And that couldn't have happened if not for a space like this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I really try to dissuade people from playing amps in here, from from doing any sort of amplification. All my years with the eyesores, it was always very disappointing for me that we played all these beautiful acoustic instruments, but because of the nature of the venues we were playing, we always just plugged in. And so Mm -hmm. it always became a situation of us learning where to turn our amps to so we sounded mixed, Mm -hmm. as opposed to us knowing how to play with each other so, you know, Alex Accordion has a certain sound. My guitar has a certain sound. I need to play it this hard. I need to lay off the dynamics yeah. of true musicianship. Yeah. And so I love it when I can get people in here who just know how to perform, who know how to take their instrument, not be dependent on amplification, and work the audience. And there have been some great amplified acts, too. It's not to say there haven't. Every time Haunt the House plays here, he's amplified. Yeah. It's very particular for his sound. He's such a gentle singer and such a gentle finger picker. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to have you talk more about some of the bands that you played in. Like, what was the first band you played in in, in Rhode Island? In Rhode Island was the Eyesores. And yeah, I met how them. How did you connect with Rhode I was, so when I moved from Baltimore, we had uh, a handful of people that moved from Baltimore with us. You know, the glory of getting to bring a little community with you. So you go out to the new place throughout the week, you work your job, you come 
you know, you meet all these people you don't know, but on Sundays we'd all get together and hang out mm-hmm. with folks we knew and felt comfortable with. Yeah. And shortly after moving here, a buddy of mine, Jeffrey Alexander, who was the uh, guy that started uh, the Iditarod with Karen Sloan, yeah. him and Karen moved here from Baltimore as well. He already had a friend here in Providence, Margie Wenk, who at the time had a band called Difference Engine, and then she was also in The Eyesores. Mm-hmm. And like I said, Mark Bedini, the original drummer, was walking the Appalachian Trail at the time. I'm at this party at Margie's house. I don't know her or anybody. I can't remember which one of them came up to me that said, oh, Jeffrey mentions you play drums. I'm like, I can. I don't have a drum kit, but you give me one, I can play it. Yeah. They said, well, our drummer's walking the Appalachian Trail. Do you want to join us and, and be our drummer? What do you guys sound like? And in true Rhode Island fashion, they all happen to have their instruments there. Alec pulled out his accordion. Margie pulled out this giant upright bass. Matt <laughs> Everett had his guitar. And they did me a couple of numbers. And at this point, Alec was super into incorporating yodeling into his music. Yeah. And that sounds worse than it is because it was absolutely beautiful. And mm-hmm. I never heard anyone, one, yodel beautifully in a tune. And then... I never heard anyone use the accordion in any way other than stupid ass Lord, like Lawrence Welk shit. Yeah, okay. And I was, I was just taken right away. I said, yes, give me a drum set. I'm there. Yeah, okay. And I joined up with them and I did drums with them, I think, for only like three or four months until Mark came back. And then yeah. Alec was nice enough to say, can we keep you? Do you know any other instruments? I said, I play guitar. They put me on rhythm guitar and I stayed with them for another two, three years. have a certain trajectory compassion feels like it's wrenched out of me I'm floating above myself just out of reach tentatively a touch could be taken too literally everything could be suspended from wires moved out of place by a breath as the light shifts and the mood is shattered and we talk about But so I was the first band was the Eyesores. Quit that because he ate my donut after an MIT show. Oh, they killed me that donut. There's a longer story to that too, but I've told it too many times. <laughs> um, took a little break from playing, and then Jeffrey Alexander, every time the Iditarod would tour, you know, the Iditarod was a two-piece act. I guess mm-hmm. they've been kind of listed as one of the earlier uh, revival of the weird folk thing. Mm-hmm. So whenever they would tour, he would try to bring musicians that weren't on the album. So you would hear the songs in ways you wouldn't hear them on the album. Oh, okay. Yeah, which I thought was pretty neat. Yeah, yeah. And one thing you would never hear on an Iditarod album were drums. He just wanted, there were like two songs in the set that we played the first time I toured with them that had like a Scottish marching beat, which I could do, not I. Mm-hmm. The rest of it was literally, thump, cha, thump, cha. So I got to go all over Iceland, Great UK, just doing that. <laughs> so I'm like, fuck yeah, I'll go do that. Yeah. And then, you know, do a few Scottish beats. And then the other fun thing we got to do with them was he had a Piano 27. You ever play one of those? You know, the, uh, like a melodic, it's a little, right? yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a keyboard that you blow into. Yeah, and yeah. It, that was really fun. So yeah. I played that with them and I played the keyboard and then did the, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, that's when I met the Godspeed guys was touring with them. I remember the Canadian border we got stopped off. Jeffrey Alexander is also the name, I guess, of a convicted murderer from Florida. 
So when we got to the border in Canada, they thought he was the convicted murderer from Florida, and they held us up for a long time. Wow. Yes, yes. Uh, and that, that was fun. Got to do a couple tours with them. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. due to personal situations between him and Karen, um, they broke up midway through a East Coast U.S. tour we were doing with mm-hmm. this guy from England, at which point we instantly became a different band that Jeffrey had already been practicing with this woman who was playing uh, cello with us. Okay. And that was interesting. Um, again, both great tours. We were touring with Gravenhurst at that point. Uh, so did that for a little bit, then did no music for a while. And I remember I was working the Decatur at one point, and someone came up to me and said, did you ever want to be in a marching band? I remember I told you my dad used to take me to the drum corps in the National Yeah. Place. I'm yeah. like, fuck, yeah, I want to be in a marching band. <laughs> but especially not doing like John Philip Sousa stuff, but mm-hmm. you know, something more interesting. And it was this woman, Shauna, uh, what cheer was just forming. Paul what McCarthy, you, yeah, yeah, Paul McCarthy and uh, Maya Nyack were starting it. They were both Brown students, and they were kind of trying to gather anybody they could. Mm-hmm. I said, "Can you get me an actual marching quad kit? Because I don't want to try to make up some sort of weird little winky dink shit that's going to fall apart." So we bought an actual quad kit, which did end up falling apart all the time, anyways. <laughs> but I joined up with what cheer, and again, talk about not knowing shit because we were doing all. Balkan brass music, Bollywood stuff, some New Orleans, like second line mm-hmm. stuff, but especially the timing, so the Balkan shit. They would say, okay, Will, we need this in a 7 Eleven. Fuck is 7 Eleven? I don't know what that is. I guess means. most of the band, like, <coughs> oh, they were former all, high school marching band. If not former high school marching band people, right. I remember one of them, Chris Irway. I don't know if you know Chris. Chris yeah. is probably one of the most amazing musicians I've ever met. He did some sort of minor at Brown or something in music. And one of his tests for one of his class was his instructor just sits up there and starts pounding out notes on the keyboard, and he's supposed to compose it as it's happening. Wow. Like, that's Chris. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is Chris, and he can do that shit. Yeah. Um, I remember one rehearsal, because we never, we, in, especially in the beginning, we never used sheet music to learn stuff. We, there was this one song we wanted to do by a New York brass band. We got a recording of it. Chris just sat there. He'd listen for a minute. He'd stop. He'd say, okay, you do this part, this part, this part. And listen again. You do this part, this part, this part. And by the end of the night, we were doing the song. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a great opportunity. Again, to be with a musician way better than me. We get to learn some shit from him. And then, mm-hmm. get to travel the world. Yeah. Not even two years in, we were in fucking Serbia. I never thought, oh, someday I'm going to be in Serbia with 18 other people I barely know, but I really like. Yeah, yeah. so you tour a lot with what's your... We did. We toured every year. The whole idea was we would never take any of the money, because we were too big a band to make the money we made worthwhile. You know, we mm-hmm. maybe making like 13, like 15, personal, like personal, Yeah, it's not yeah. worth it. Yeah. So we just throw it into the bank. And um, every summer, we pick two weeks off, some part of the world we wanted to go. For two weeks, we get to see places we wouldn't see. It was paid vacation. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, but, and doing something we loved, right? It was a, such a great way, and especially at that point. You know, I, I joined what year? I think when I was 30, um, maybe 31, 32. I don't know. I was still young enough where I could keep up and really enjoy it. Not yeah. be annoyed by how fucking young everyone else was.
I, I wore a monkey mask because I actually have tremendous stage fright too. So standing in front of people performing because we had no stage. Like the stage, I'm not as nervous. I can just turn my back, do my shit. I can ignore the audience. But when you are literally in the audience, especially the drummers, which were always in the front of the yeah. line, at one, because we would actually physically keep people from falling into the horns and banging their teeth and shit like that. Oh, okay. But, oh, yeah. No, there's definitely a reason why the drums are in front. Yeah. But then, then two, because of my voice, I could shout, you know, announce songs, all that shit. But I wore the monkey mask to get over the stage fight. And by the end of it, I think I'd only usually wear a mask for the first song. And it was always a goddamn hot Especially as what year went on and we got bigger and bigger, you know, we're playing rooms with this five, six hundred people in there. And I'm like, I don't know these people. So a lot of alcohol and a mask. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I don't care that I don't know you. Let's yeah, dance. Yeah, okay. And, you know, which made it a lot more fun than just timid little stuttery me being like, all right, guys, uh, we're going to yeah. play a really neat song. Maybe yeah, consider yeah. dancing. <laughs> ta, 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 ta. Yeah. So, and what yeah. were some of the places that you're playing locally? In, in Rhode Island. When we first started, and I feel this is, and I will say this live, Dan, if you're listening, I feel what chairs lost this, but they kind of almost have to at this point. We would play anywhere. Yeah. I mean, our goal was to see, our first goal, I feel, was like to see, can we get free drinks if we crash a bar? So we'd crash the Decatur all the time. And sure enough, they'd start pouring us rounds and shit. We're sitting here having a blast. Yeah. Um, we were crashing the Decatur. We were just wandering the streets, trying to have, give people an experience they weren't expecting. For yeah. years, I've been you know, proposing, let's crash the DMV. You know we'll get like a song or two out before the cops shuffle us out. But those people at the DMV will always remember yeah. that day a marching band broke into the DMV. Yeah. And we would do stuff like that. I remember we crashed a shop right once. And, you know, it's always fun to see security trying to corral 18 like, people doing shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we crashed a lot of shit at first. But then we started getting shows. Mm-hmm. And, again, we'd take anything, weddings, little birthday parties, any shows we could. Yeah. But as our chops got better, as our name got more known, as our goals got bigger for where we wanted to go, we therefore started charging more money. Mm-hmm. We be- And also, too, as politics, it's, again, 18-person band, 18-20-person band. So you have a yeah. lot of different people in there and their opinions. Yeah, yeah. And as the band went on, we started getting a lot more political people in there who wanted to take political stands, where I was always just in there to play the music. So all of a sudden, shows are being offered to us, but because, you know, someone had sneezed in the direction of a company that was sponsored by this company or that company, now we can't do this show. Okay. It became a lot more particular. To the point, much to, I think, what cheer should be, ERB, yeah. who was started by people we did not allow into what cheer. And I don't mean not allow them into as we didn't like them or whatever. As we got better, we'd have tryouts because, you know, it's always a revolving cast of people. You had to meet a certain uh, level of musicianship. The irony being, I would have never passed a what chair rehearsal. Had I not gotten in on the beginning, they would have never allowed me in. All these people who didn't get in started their own marching band, ERB, yeah, which I thought was awesome. Bands. How yeah. fucking great is that? Don't mm-hmm. get, don't get, you know, uh, dis- uh, disappointed. Start your own thing. Yeah. But then they also kicked out the lady who started that. Which I love the story behind that. Um, and so what happened is ERB now takes a lot of shows what chair won't take, and I say this, and, and people can come at me for however they want, for how they feel about this statement. What cheer is good? Even drunk off our asses and missing notes, we're good. Or they're good. Um, ERB has a lot of good musicians in it, but a questionable repertoire as far as the songs they choose to pick. And they're kind of hokey. And people started mistaking ERB for what cheer. So I'd be walking around and say, oh, we saw you guys play the other day. Oh, okay. Yeah. You weren't playing. Where's that? Oh, that was ERB. So people are thinking that was what cheer. 
Yeah. So what's yours going to start taking some more local shows? Like, I, I was always very competitive about the marching band scene. Yeah. You know, I'm all for friendly competition as in shut up, we're better. <laughs> but, uh, so ERB and ERB has gotten way better over the years too. They really have. Um, what would you say is your greatest music or I guess even like creative accomplishment? Um, I would like to think it has not happened yet. Cool. Uh, my luckiest music accomplishment was being in what year? For all the other bands I've been in, which are great, think how hard it is to know five people you really like being around, much mm-hmm. less 20. Yeah. Much less traveling on planes with them, much less being sleep deprived with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, even for people in what cheer that I had issues with, I still generally like them. I can mm-hmm. see how they're incredible people. Mm-hmm. Ten years with that band, I got to be with and meet all the different people that came in and out of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's that's not my greatest accomplishment, but I got lucky enough to be with that accomplishment. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely something. Well, thank yeah. you. Fuck yeah. <laughs>